On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Greetings, listeners. I'm Dr. Rachel Basio, and I'm here in the sound room of the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island. This is the inaugural podcast, the pilot episode of Careers in the Public Humanities. With me today from the University of Connecticut in stores is fellow URI English alum, Dr. Claire Reynolds. Hello, Claire. Hi, Rachel. Oh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'd love to begin by having you share with listeners something of your role, all of the important and exciting things you do as communications coordinator for the Department of English at UConn. Okay, well, it's it's really a great job. I do. Uh, we we have a very productive department, and we've got mm, probably a hundred faculty and adjuncts, something in that region, who are all very productive. They they publish, they present their work in a lot of different venues. And my job is to make them look good. I mean, that's a part of my job. Um, so, I publicize what everyone is doing um, in various venues. We produce a I produce a newsletter uh, twice a year that goes out to about 3,000 people. Um, I maintain the website and I publicize uh, you know, everyone's activities on the website as well. And then I also provide support for some affiliated websites. Um, I uh, maintain a database and spreadsheets for annual faculty reports. I do all of the uh, collection and organization of paperwork for promotion tenure and reappointment for faculty. I, I process all of the honoraria for guest speakers. We have tons of guest speakers. Um, I process all their honoraria. I do reimbursements for travel for the, for the faculty who are always going someplace. Um, and I hardly have a spare moment, and I, I feel like I am really well used. You said something about the the faculty, both faculty and adjunct, as doing work and your role in supporting their work. Can you say more about how you are able to kind of publicize their roles on campus and beyond. But also I'm thinking about that relationship, um, you know, between, let's say, tenure faculty and the adjunct faculty. Uh, To what extent are you able to sort of celebrate the work of your adjunct faculty, fold them into, um, you know, your role as as communications coordinator? Is there a difference there or are you able to serve both of those um, groups of your faculty equally? Well, I, I serve both uh, both groups equally. Um, we are one department, and there's not such a great divide between uh, tenured or full-time faculty and the adjunct faculty. So, for example, I, I publish every month. I publish a list of everyone's accomplishments and publications and presentations, and um, I don't differentiate between adjunct faculty and 
the tenured faculty on that. So it's it's really a chance for all of the members of our department, including grad students, um, mm. to see what everyone else is up to and to um, recognize what a productive department we are all a part of. And when you're publicizing the scholarship of faculty members, of graduate students. I mean, I can imagine there are multiple ends there, right? But what is the need to have an additional person communicating the work that they're doing? Well, for one thing, um, I think we are in an era when humanities is a little bit under siege. And so a big part of how I see my job is to um, show people in upper-level administration in the university and, for example, in the dean's office and the provost's office, that we really are a very productive department and that we really are a credit to the university. So um, I publicize in the university newspaper. I put events on the university events calendar. I put events on our website. I put them in the, um, the biannual newsletter. Um, you know, every venue that I can find, I make sure that the word is out there that English is really producing things. Because of your own scholarly background, right? You, 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 ha- you know how to speak about the importance of the scholarship that humanities p- professionals do. So I'm thinking, now I, I, I know you received your PhD in English in 2008. I do want to hear you speak about your specialization, your academic work, but um, very curious to know how your PhD work connects to or shapes what you do now. I, I came to my education as what they call a non-traditional student. Uh, before I came back to URI, I also got my undergraduate degree and my master's at URI. Uh, and before I came back to finish my um, undergraduate degree, I spent about 12 years sailing around the world, uh, seeing a lot of different cultures, learning different languages, eating different foods, um, and then when I got came moved ashore, I owned a restaurant for 11 years. So, and and it was a, a breakfast and lunch diner. I had a lot of working class people and as customers. Um, and my PhD work was on working class literature written by women, uh, by American women, during periods of national crisis. Um, and I think periods of national crisis and the three periods that I studied were um, Reconstruction, World War One, and World War Two. And which, which I think impacted working class people to, to a degree that uh, maybe wealthier people were not uh, impacted. Mm. Um, so I, I bring my life experience, which is, you know, I've seen a, a lot of how people live and a lot of what people endure to celebrate life. Um, and I think that that all has an influence on what I see about how people are um, researching and and producing and publishing. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. I I am aware that you served as editor of the academic journal American Transcendental Quarterly while a PhD student a PhD student at URI. This journal is sadly no longer in production here, but your work as editor, I am aware that your work continues. Can you tell us about your role with Mealis, another outstanding academic journal? Right. Well, I was, when I got my PhD, um, I, I, you know, I really got my PhD for myself. It was something that I decided I wanted to do. I wasn't necessarily doing it as a career move, but as soon as I had the degree in hand, 
<clears throat> excuse me, I, I sort of got sucked into the job market, you know, the, the search for a yeah. job. And um, I made a choice to go with, to accept an offer from University of Connecticut to be the associate editor for Mellis. Um, I, I had a choice to either teach or edit, and I decided to go with editing. That was really more, uh, it more, spoke to me more. Um, and MELIS is, is an acronym that stands for Multi-Ethnic Literature of the United States. So I was able to work with a lot of authors uh, on uh, issues that are not, uh, I don't know, English, English as a discipline for so long was really kind of white man's, white man's writings. Yeah. And I was able to work with a lot of uh, non-white man's <laughs> writings. So I wanted to think about what your role, are you still working in that capacity at UConn? Are you still working as the assistant editor of the journal? No, Mellis also went okay. to another university. Uh, I think it's at University oh. of South Dakota now. But I am an editor for life. I'm one of those people that you go out to dinner mm. in a restaurant, and I'm one of those people that finds the, mis the misspellings on the menu. I am an editor. Uh, people in the department <laughs> send me their papers and ask me if I can have a look and give them, you know, give them a hand with editing. I, I just happen to have a, a good... Uh, a good feel for the flow of language and, and for how to put things together yeah. in a convincing way. So I'm not yeah. working as an editor of that journal anymore, but I am an editor for life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Claire, many of our listeners are current PhD students in humanities fields, and they are thinking how to identify literary and cultural publics that can support the vital work they are uniquely trained to do. With this audience in mind, I do want to spend a little more time thinking with you about your job search, how you progressed from your academic studies to your present employment. So was the original offer at UConn for the communications coordinator position, or did it begin at Mellis and then evolve? No, the original job offer was uh, for to be the associate editor for Mellis. And I did that for four years, and then um, <clears throat> the journal moved to another institution, and I had a choice to um, look for another position at University of Connecticut. Um, and actually, the English department put together a job for me. Um, they uh, wanted to keep me in the department, I guess, and they put together a job yeah, for me that for sure. that draws on my strengths. So. Um, so that's where I am. And, you know, I, I look at grad students today from our department, and they, they are sending out, I don't know, 30, 40 applications. Um, and they go on all these interviews. I sent out a total of five applications. I had two campus visits and two job offers, and I uh, accepted one. And I think, you know, I, I was very lucky in that respect that I didn't have to spend too much time looking for a job. But there are jobs for English yeah. majors and humanities majors. People are looking for um, skills uh, such as writing and being able to think and being able to put thoughts together cogently. Um, I, I do think it's the best major to have. It, it teaches you not necessarily what to think or how to think, but it teaches you to think. The URI English department, both faculty and graduate students, is working through the Humanities at Large initiative to reconceptualize PhD training to meet the demands of the current academic market and cultural landscape. We are exploring um, cross-disciplinary preparation, experiential learning opportunities, and so I'm wondering what shaped your course of study. And you, you, you said some of this earlier, but if we can return to that. Um, okay, well, 
during my sailing years, I spent a lot of time um, ashore in little villages with people who we Americans would look at and say they're poor. Um, <clears throat> they had dirt floors. They, you know, didn't have electricity or running water um, and that kind of thing. And that gave me an appreciation for, uh, I don't know how to, how to say this exactly, but something like uh, people of the earth, people who, mm. um, you know, are, don't live lives of privilege. And I think that influenced my interest in uh, working class literature. Um, and also, as I said earlier, my, my restaurant, the people I was rubbing shoulders with at my restaurant were, um, you know, workers going, go, going into their jobs every day just to make a living, just to make ends meet. Um, and so I think my exposure to those people uh, prompted my interest in working class literature. I mean, it, it speaks to me. How exactly did you bring in that wide range of experiences into the, the work you ultimately produced for graduation requirements? Uh, one thing is that I have really uh, packed a lot of different experiences into my life. Um, so I came to my, my studies with a really broad background of um, areas where I could speak, areas that I had lived. Um, I was running my restaurant when I first came back to URI to, to finish my undergraduate degree. And so for that, I had to take classes at night because I was working 70 hours a week wow. during the day. Um, and then I took two years off and ended up selling the restaurant to go to grad school. And probably the smartest thing I did in graduate school, or one of the smartest things, was choosing Josie Campbell as my advisor. Uh, and she also is very well-traveled, very has lived many different experiences, and she was able to work with me on putting together a program about which I felt a great deal of passion. Can you say something about, are you still doing scholarship research of your own? I am still working on uh, my dissertation. I mean, not working on my dissertation, but I do still plan to get that published. Wonderful. And it has opened up a, lo a lot of more research for me. And um, are you able to um, connect, to continue to connect your research interests, your scholarly interests with the professional work that you're doing at UConn as communications coordinator? Well, I think the greatest way is that I'm surrounded by academics and I'm on uh, very good terms with them. I, um, I consider them my peers, my colleagues. Yes. So I have no end of sounding boards to float my ideas past. The way you are describing um, the climate at UConn is actually very refreshing to me. It sounds as if, um, both in the way you spoke about adjunct faculty and in the way you're speaking of yourself, that there's a, a really vibrant and inclusive um, thinking community in the department there. Absolutely. And I was just talking to a coworker of mine um, just yesterday, in fact, and we were talking about how this department there doesn't seem to be much political um, backstabbing, if you want, uh, going on. Um, people really are seem to be very supportive of each other doing their best. Um, and it is refreshing. It's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful community to, to be a part of.
Can you speak more about, you know, what fulfills you at your role at UConn and maybe where you see it going, where you'd like to see it going, um, how you'd like to see your professional life continue or expand? I, I really love serving people. And I have a very strong sense that the work I do serves individuals in the department, serves the department as a whole uh, in sort of defending our space um, in the College of Liberal Arts and Humanities. Um, but in, in addition to serving the department as a whole, I, I have a strong sense that the work I do makes a difference for the individuals in the department. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I work five days a week. At the end of the day, I close up my office and I go home knowing that um, I really have given it my all um, and that I'm appreciated. Um, I, I find this job very fulfilling. Can, can you say something about the Ph.D. itself? You know, to what extent it was um, an, an advantage, a requirement, um, both of the first position you took as editor and then in creating... Um, the position as communications coordinator. The job as associate editor of Mellis did not require a PhD, but it was definitely what put me over the top of everyone else who was applying for the job. And it put me in a very good position sure. for um, for this job that they created for me as communications coordinator. Uh, because the fact that I have a PhD, I, I can sort of speak the language that these people speak. I understand what they're going through, and that I was such a recent graduate student, yes. I understand what graduate students are going through, too. So, you know, I can be helpful in ways that maybe someone without this degree would not be able to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thank you. With, with the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Arts under recent threat of defunding, it feels strange to recall that only four years ago, in 2013, the Academy of Arts and Sciences Commission on the Humanities and Social Sciences released a comprehensive bipartisan report equating a strong liberal arts education with the prospects of, and here I quote, a vibrant, competitive, and secure nation. The report called these disciplines the very heart of the matter, and those specifically trained in humanities professions as keepers of the republic. The commission identified humanities training as vital to an adaptable and creative workforce. So bearing this in mind, what thoughts or advice do you have for existing or prospective PhDs in English as they think about the state of the humanities, the institutions, academic or otherwise, that might support their work, but also of the public role humanities scholars can or need to fill in the coming decades. But I, th I think that the humanities is more important now than ever. I think that we as human beings are hardwired to interact socially with each other. And um, communication is a big part of that interaction. Um, and thinking is a big part of that interaction. And being able to relate is a big part. And humanities majors learn to think, and they learn to think about issues that affect other human beings. And I, I'm thrilled, actually, by the way you have described your um, the journey into the, the, the present position that you hold, because I think part of it, too, is remembering um, that for all of us that are coming, myself included, that are coming out of PhD programs in humanities fields, is remembering that 
the work the work is out there and the need is out there right and so there is a tr- there is um, an incredible number of opportunities and it's and it's not just about um, you know looking for those jobs it's also about being part of creating those jobs right in and what they will look like in the coming decades. So I'm I'm thrilled, Claire, that the first this again this is our inaugural podcast that the first person we've spoken to, you know, really has done that. And so I, I thank you. I thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. And I think there's something very important that humanities majors need to um, to carry with them is that not everyone can think cogently. Not everyone can express themselves cogently. Not everyone can write a paper. And humanities majors can. And that's that's an invaluable skill, which is worth pursuing. Yeah, and and maybe me maybe is urgent right now in particular. So, so thank you, thank you, Claire. Thank you for your work that you're doing in support of humanities emanating from stores and beyond. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be on this podcast, and um, I want you to know that you have energized me for the rest of the day. Thank you. <laughs> thank you kindly. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. We hope you'll join us when our full season commences this fall. In early episodes, we'll interview Dr. Paul Erickson, Program Director for Humanities, Arts, Education, and American Institutions at the American Academy of Arts and Science. In addition, we'll speak with Dr. James Golden, Director of Education at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast has been produced by Rachel Basio and Michelle Meek in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Ryan Engley and Catherine Winters. Michelle Meek is our editor and Mark Seta is our sound designer. 